Diners, drive-ins, and dives. 30-minute meals with Rachel Ray. Cupcake Wars. Beat Bobby Flay. Hey, these are all shows on the Food Network. Did you know the Food Network launched in 1993? In 2016, the cable channel was seen on 95 million American homes. Imagine a single television channel devoted to food and cooking. It just proves what an impact food has on our daily lives. And the same was true in the church at Corinth. In fact, issues involving food had crept into the Corinthians' worship. A major debate had erupted in the church. There was a beef over beef. I have no doubt if there had been a food network at the time, this controversy would have become primetime programming. Tailgate warriors would have aired alive from Corinth. A messy food fight would have started in the church. And Paul steps in to make sure it gets chopped. Here we go. Chapter 8 begins. Now concerning things offered to idols. Remember at this point in 1 Corinthians, we're listening to one side of a two-sided conversation. Paul is answering questions asked in a previous letter. And one of the questions involved meat sacrificed to idols. Now understand, in the ancient world, there were two places to purchase your ground round. You could go to the market and you could pay the premium prices, or you could buy beef from the pagan temples. When an animal was sacrificed to an idol, the priest would eat a portion, and then the leftover cuts were sold to raise revenues for the temple. Some of the Corinthian Christians were purchasing the bargain beef. Now, the Corinthians weren't idolaters. They were just shrewd shoppers. They were coupon clippers. You ladies would be proud of them. They hated paganism and all that went with it. They just liked getting their hamburger on the cheap. But was this right? How can a Christian eat meat if he or she knows that it was sacrificed to an idol? The idea of guilt by association had been firmly etched in their minds. Hey, if it was in the devil's freezer, how can you put it on the grill for God? And this was not just an issue for the ancients. A recent headline appeared in WorldNet Daily. Has your Thanksgiving turkey been sacrificed to idols? The author reported that America's most popular turkey brand, Butterball, is now processing their turkeys according to halal or Islamic standards. Last year, millions of Americans apparently ate a Thanksgiving turkey blessed in the name of Allah. What if you were out shopping for a Thanksgiving turkey and the best buy was a butterball? Would it matter if it had received an Islamic blessing? You're going to gather at the table and eat meat to the glory of Jesus. In fact, the money you save from your shrewd shopping will be donated to the church. Well, is it okay to buy the butterball? Or will this purchase make you a turkey in God's eyes? Well, this was the very issue that had divided the church in Corinth. Some said yes to this question. Others said no. But everyone was adamant that they were right. 
You see, more revealing than the debate was the haughtiness and arrogance it revealed. Paul will deal with their beef, but first he addresses their pride. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It's interesting, though, that there was knowledge on both sides of this issue. Folks on the don't do it side understood the dangers of idolatry. Demonic forces were behind the worship of false gods. Whereas the folks on the go to it side knew that idols were nothing but sticks of wood. False gods don't exist, and meat sacrificed on their altars is just that, a piece of meat. See, the don't do it and the go to it each had valid points. The problem, though, was that both sides, both groups, failed to recognize the legitimacy of each other's concerns. They thought, I'm right and you're wrong. Their knowledge had gone to their heads, not to their hearts. You know, the football helmet that my son used to wear contained this rubber bladder that you would inflate with air. There was a nozzle on top of the football helmet, and you stick the, uh, the pump in the nozzle, and you could pump up the bladder inside the, the helmet. You know, I'm afraid that many of us have a similar nozzle embedded right up there on your scalp. Feel it with your hands up there. Do you feel that little nozzle right, right up there? Some of us have one. We learn a little truth, and what happens? It goes straight to our heads. Our heads inflate. Oh, we're right now, and everybody else is wrong. You know, in chapter 5, Paul used leaven or yeast as a type of sin. And isn't that fitting? Why? Because yeast corrupts by puffing up. Sin causes pride. Actually, the most dangerous person in the church is the guy who knows just enough to think he knows it all. Be leery of the self-proclaimed expert who feels that it's his duty to roam the church and police the saints. I love the quote, some people drink at the fountain of knowledge, others just gargle. Beware of the garglers. Paul says to both camps here in Corinth, he says, let some air out of your head and pump some love into your heart. That's the first thing you need to do. The Corinthians had big heads but small hearts. You know, it's been said, love without truth is hypocrisy, but truth without love is brutality. We won't always agree on every issue, but we can always show each other love. Paul concludes in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, the one is known by him. This one is known by him. You know, the key to knowing God is the heart, not the head. Blaise Pascal once wrote, man's wisdom must be understood to be loved, whereas God's wisdom must be loved to be understood. How true that is. Head knowledge has a place. God's truth is vital to our faith, but academic knowledge alone is not enough to save us. Real saving faith is a heartfelt faith. Well, Paul continues, therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, 
We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. There's only one God, only one true God. And idols are nothing but chunks of wood or pieces of stone. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Paul's saying other deities don't exist, but even if they did, our Father God and the Lord Jesus Christ would reign supreme. The Father God created all things. Jesus sustains all things. If pagan gods did exist, they would bow and obey the Christian God. He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscious, conscience, being weak, is defiled. Paul's saying that there are some people who are affected by superstition. They believe in what ain't so. And thus, they might be tempted to placate a superstition or to bow to a false belief. You know, they might ask each other, do, do we really want to eat a slice of devil's food cake? That's of the devil. Paul says, don't worry about what you eat. Your diet and the devil are not connected. Foods don't make us holy. Paul says, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worst. In other words, we're right with God through faith, not food. A right relationship with God is one through the work of Christ, not through our efforts. Eat or don't eat. Our diet makes no difference in our standing before God. Now realize, just because Satan uses an object at some point, like meat sacrificed to an idol, that doesn't mean that that object is now intrinsically evil. You could apply the same principle to music. Satan inspires songs and uses music to promote evil and to lead people astray. But that doesn't make the chords and the instruments themselves that make the music, you know, something evil in and of itself. Those same chords and same instruments can be used to praise God. An A chord is, a, is amoral in and of itself. A piece of meat is just meat and a chord is just music. It ends up good or evil depending on the motive behind its use. And the same is true with all kinds of things in life. Dancing, or fashion, or alcohol, or gambling, or a thousand other issues that cause controversy among Christians. See, some issues aren't intrinsically right or wrong, black or white. They're gray matters. In 1928, Donald Barnhouse spoke at a Bible conference attended by 200 young people and some prudish counselors. One afternoon, one of the older women approached Barnhouse about an appalling, sinful, wicked practice going on among the girls at the camp. You won't believe this. But there were girls walking around that camp in front of the boys with no stockings. With no stockings, mind you. 
These petty old ladies, they wanted the good preacher to rebuke the supposed spirit of compromise that had invaded the camp. Well, Dr. Barnhouse, he writes about the incident. He says, looking them straight in the eye, I said, the Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped and said, she did it? I answered, in Mary's time, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century. Dr. Barnhouse's answer immediately stifled their protest, made them rethink the issue. See, a Christian from America may take offense when his German brother drinks a beer, while the German may be appalled when an American sister wears a two-piece swimsuit to the beach. I've known Christians who never feel right about wearing shorts to church, but they don't mind lighting up a cigarette as they leave the sanctuary. Like meat sacrificed to idols, cultural taboos are a moving target. They change from place to place and from tribe to tribe and from generation to generation. Remember, meat is nothing but meat. It's the attitude behind the use of it that varies from conscience to conscience. My conscience is not your master, nor is your conscience my master. Jesus is the only master. We all should follow his, his spirit in these gray matters. I love what Mark Twain once said. The trouble with the world is not that people know too little, but they know so many things that ain't so. And this applies to church people as well. Too many church folks have been trained by their superstitions or by their prejudices or by their legalisms or by legend. People, people imposed rules govern their conscience. Hey, rather than love God and love people, rather than be led by God's Spirit, rather than do what glorifies God, you know, it's always easier to just follow somebody else's orders. Hey, Paul doesn't encourage the Corinthians to violate their conscience. He wants them to retrain it, though, so that it's no longer governed by tradition, but by truth. And we should do the same with our conscience. Well, verse 9 tells us, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Now remember verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We should be living by love, not legalism. But we should also be living by true love, not some reckless version of Christian liberty. Logically, you can know that meat is just meat. But to a younger Christian, a naive Christian, a weaker Christian, one with a weaker faith, what he eats may still be an issue for him. What he or she drinks may still be an issue for them. Logic shouldn't be our only God. What about love? See, you and I can become so right that we become wrong. If we insist on our liberty, knowing that it's going to lead another brother or sister astray, what was right for us has become a sin to him or her. You know, you know, we shouldn't take that risk. We shouldn't put them in jeopardy. 
It might be fine for you to drink a glass of wine or for you to go out dancing or for you to listen to certain types of secular music. You've grown in Christ. You've gained some discernment and some self-control. Good for you. But what you're doing might lead a weaker believer down the wrong path. If so, it's a sin for you to take that risk with their faith. If what you do harms a brother, then love says, don't do it. More important than you making a point is you winning a brother. Paul reiterates this in verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. He writes, Therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Did you hear what he said? Do you hear? You folks at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, of all people, did you hear what Paul just said? Notice the extent to which love took Paul. He will never eat meat again. Meat. Eat meat again. He'll never do it. Imagine steak and barbecue pork and beef brisket and juicy fall-off-the-bone ribs. Are you kidding me? Paul is prepared to give it all up for the faith of another believer. He'll eat vegetables, broccoli, and lettuce if need be for the faith of a brother. Can you imagine? This is the extent to which he's willing to go to show love for his brothers and sisters. Do you really want to stumble a person Christ died to make stand? Really? To sin against a weaker brother is to sin against Christ. If Paul was willing to say, hey, I'll never eat meat again because of my brother to stumble, boy, he, he stretched the boundaries for us. It's amazing how far love will go to help a weaker brother. Well, chapter 9 continues this discussion about liberty, but on a different topic. For here Paul points to how he curtailed his freedom as an apostle. In other words, he gave up certain perks and privileges to keep the Corinthians from stumbling. Once again, he forfeits his freedom for the good of others. He begins, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And here and in Acts chapter 1 verse 21, we learn that apparently one of the requirements for being an apostle was being an eyewitness of the risen Christ. Paul qualified when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Well, he continues, Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The Corinthian church was also evidence of Paul's apostleship. A thriving church had been born in an evil city. It was proof that God's hand had been upon Paul's ministry. Paul is affirming his right to claim apostlehood, apostleship. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? 
Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? One apostolic perk was food and lodging from the host church. When the apostles would travel, the church would put them up and take them to dinner and give them food. Also, they had certain travel benefits. An apostle could travel with his wife and her expenses be paid. As a matter of fact, this was how Cephas or Peter, Pentecost Peter, this is how Peter rolled. He took his wife with him whenever he traveled. And Paul could have demanded similar treatment himself. It was his apostolic right. Instead, Paul refused to take advantage of his rights. Rather, when he traveled, he kept a low profile. Often, he paid the expenses himself. And verse 3 is a really big problem for Roman Catholics who teach that Peter was the first pope. If he was, that means you got a married pope. Peter had a wife. And apparently took her with him when he traveled. Which reminds me of the newspaper tycoon. He had three sons. He wanted to select one of those sons to become his successor. But he wasn't sure which son would make the best newspaper man. So he proposed a big test. He asked each boy to come up with a, the most shocking, the most sensational three-word headline he could, he could dream. Well, the first son, he composed his headline. It read, Biden turns Republican. <laughs> Sensational. Boy, that, was, that really caught everybody's attention. That was, that was a good try. But the second son bested him. His read, Ayatollah becomes Jewish. Wow, that, that was pretty sensational too. But it was the third son who won the prize. His headline had just two words, Pope elopes. That was over the top. Paul's point is that an apostle, as an apostle, he had certain rights that he willingly forfeited for the good of others. Others, Other apostles were married and traveled with their wives. Paul stayed single. He writes in verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? You see, here was another right that he forfeited due to his love for the Corinthians. From its earliest days, the church supported its leaders financially so that they could devote themselves to their full-time ministry. Paul, too, was entitled to such support, but in Corinth, he waived that privilege. Acts 18 verse 3 tells us that while he was in Corinth, he lodged with Aquila and Priscilla. And he helped make ends meet by working with them in their tent-making business. A rabbi was always required to learn a trade, and apparently Paul had chosen tent-making. His intent was not to be a financial burden on the Corinthians, and so he worked during the day, and he taught in the synagogue and in the marketplace at night. But here he questions the wisdom of that strategy. He says in verse 7, Whoever goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? You see, Paul's strategy to work a secular job 
to support himself financially had not been optimal ministry-wise. And he mentions as an example a soldier and a vine dresser and a farmer. Soldiers should be supported by the people they help to defend. If a soldier in battle is worried about his family back home, whether they're starving or whether they're getting evicted, how can he stay focused on the fight, on the battle at hand? A distracted soldier becomes a defeated soldier. He's better on the battlefront if he's not worried about the home front. And Paul's point is the same for the pastor. How can a pastor give himself fully to the study of God's Word and to prayer for God's people if his own needs aren't met and he's worrying about how he's going to feed his family? Paul also says that you won't find a thirsty vine dresser. The vine dresser drinks from his own vineyard. A dairy farmer, you won't find a dairy farmer with brittle bones. The vine dresser's drinking from the vineyard and the farmer's drinking milk from his own cows, and he should. And likewise, a pastor should be supported from the finances that are taken in by the ministry. Do understand, no pastor should draw an exorbitant salary. But neither should a pastor make the minimum. You know, many churches have the, strat- have the philosophy, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. A church with that attitude may just get what they pay for. Paul here is rebuking the Corinthians. They need to pony up and pay the pastor. Verse 8, do I say these things as a mere man or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses. And Paul here quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. A verse that normally you wouldn't associate with paying the pastor. And yet that's exactly how Paul interprets it. Apparently the Holy Spirit's application of Scripture can be quite broad. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. A good farmer allows his ox to munch the grain as the ox threshes the wheat. Hey, he needs to eat. He needs to fortify himself. A weak ox is worthless. And Paul says just as feeding the ox is an expense of the harvest, supporting the pastor is an expense of the spiritual harvest. Paul concludes his commentary on Deuteronomy. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. See, it's every worker's hope to get paid a wage commiserate with his contribution. And I think the same is true of a pastor. Years ago, it's been years ago now, We had a fellow who suggested capping my salary. It wasn't much, trust me. I don't know why it needed to be capped. And I resisted the idea. Not because I wanted any more money, but because I knew I needed a lot of hope. I mean, why kill a man's incentive to work hard? You know, why put a man in a position where he can do nothing to affect his salary? I told the elders, I said, please, you can raise my salary or you can cut my salary, but don't ever put me in a situation where there's nothing I can do about my salary. You know, I want to be able to work harder if need be. 
that produces, if you cap a man's salary and you, you say, you know, you, this is what you're going to get paid and nothing, nothing more, nothing less, that produces a hopeless worker and a, and a frustrated pastor. Paul understood men and he understood pastors and what motivates both. And so he says, he who plows should plow in hope. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And here's an important spiritual principle. If a pastor helps you spiritually, you should support him materially. Hey, if a church is adding to your life spiritually, if it's helping you to focus on eternal things, then it's a small trade-off for you to help that church pay a few of its bills. It's the least you should do. You know, every now and then you have somebody walks into the church, well, I just don't, who says we ought to pay the pastor? Well, I hope you see tonight what God says you should pay the pastor. I'm not making this up. Everybody understand that, right? I'm not making this up. We're just reading it from the Bible, and we're trying to understand what it says, trying to let it speak for itself. And Paul says, if this applies to all pastors, it certainly should apply to himself in his dealings with the Corinthians. He says, for if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. See, Paul had founded the church in Corinth. He was the pastor most entitled to a salary, but he had laid aside his rights, lest someone accuse him of selfish motivation. Realize, Paul was not, a, Paul was not above accepting a church's financial help. On other occasions, he gladly received such support, just not from the Corinthians. Perhaps the Corinthians were suspicious of crooked clergy. Maybe they had been burned by another pastor. We don't know all the details, but Paul wanted them to know he cared about their soul, not their money. And you know, this is how Calvary Chapel has patterned our approach to money. You know this. You know we don't talk about money very often here at this church. Sure, we have needs. Don't think the power companies donate electricity. Trust me. I think we would be well within our God-ordained right to be bolder in our comments about giving. But for 38 years, we have waived many of those rights. I realized very early on how often in the past the appeal for money has been abused in our area and how folks have been manipulated by other churches. And thus, for the sake of the gospel, we've decided to be a church that limits our appeals. We want Calvary Chapel to exist to meet your needs, not the other way around. We believe God will take care of the needs of His church if we're faithful to the ministry that He's given us. Well, verse 13, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Again, he's going back to this. This is why you should pay the pastor. When an Old Testament worshiper brought an animal to the altar, the priest who administered the sacrifice, he got a choice cut of meat. He was paid in beef. The Old Testament priest was supported by the offerings that were given to the temple. He says, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. 
And thus what was true of the Old Testament priest should be true of the New Testament pastors. The pastor should be paid from the monetary sacrifices offered to God and to his work. Verse 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Paul would rather die than run the risk of anyone casting him as a money-hungry preacher. Reminds me of Billy Graham, early in his ministry. In fact, it was after, after a crusade here in Atlanta. A newspaper ran a photo of Billy leaving the stadium with bags of money. He was innocent of any wrongdoing, but it looked bad. And from that day onward, Billy Graham made a commitment. He separated himself from the money. He adopted a modest salary. He set up strict guidelines for how others would handle the ministry's finances. He wanted everything not just to be above board, but to appear above board. He eliminated any appearance of impropriety. And I believe this should be our attitude. He says in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For of necessity it is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Well, I like that. Paul says, I have no other choice. God has pressed it upon my heart to preach the gospel. You know, when young men come to me and they, they want advice, and they tell me they're considering going into the ministry, I always tell them, I say, look, if you can do anything else in the world other than be a pastor and be happy doing it, then don't be a pastor. Being a pastor isn't just a career move. It should be the passion of the man's heart. It is nothing less than a calling from God. Paul said he had no choice in the matter. Being a pastor was laid upon Paul of necessity. Woe to him if he didn't preach the gospel. Paul would have been successful at whatever he did, but satisfied? I doubt it. God called Paul to preach and he would be happy doing nothing less. He says, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? Then when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. The ministry wasn't a job to Paul. He never served for a paycheck. The ministry was a stewardship. It was a divine responsibility to Paul. His reward was not charging the people he served. His his job was serving them without charging them a dime. That was his reward. He never abused his authority. Once I was watching a television special. It was on the first 50 years of the NBA. One of the old timers, he said this, the team owners were the dumbest people on earth. They paid us a salary, but they didn't have to. We would have played for free. They they played for the love of the game. And guys, I'm telling you, this is how I feel about being a pastor. Don't misunderstand. I appreciate my salary. And I kind of hesitate saying this because some of you guys might might want to, oh, okay. Well, let's pull it from the guy. 
but, but I mean, I appreciate my salary, and you're being biblical for paying me. But I've said this more than once over the last 38 years. If you didn't pay me to pastor this church, I'd pay you for the opportunity. Pastor is the most demanding, taxing, challenging, intense job that I know, but I wouldn't trade it for any other post in the world. I thank God daily for the opportunity he's given me to communicate his word and to pastor his people. Verse 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Paul's freedom in Christ was far-reaching. He was free from the law. He was free to eat meat. He was free from money. But notice he was also free from the opinions of men. Paul didn't care one iota of what people thought about him. His only desire was the Lord's approval. He didn't care what people thought of him. He cared about what they thought of Jesus and the gospel. He was an ambassador for Christ. His goal was to lead people to Jesus. And this is why he was always building bridges to different people groups. And he elaborates on his strategy in verse 20. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Paul was faithful and flexible. If his audience were Jews, then he would observe Jewish customs. He'd eat kosher. He keep the Sabbath. Hey, it wasn't the time or place to flaunt his freedom. Why try to prove a point and lose a soul who needs Jesus? But while speaking to the Gentiles, he downplayed his Jewishness and he extolled his freedoms. Paul knew if he could fit in, then he would be in a better position to speak up. Obviously, we're not talking about compromising on moral or ethical or spiritual or biblical values. Paul was pointing out that he had adapted to the culture at hand. You see, most likely, it is the biker who will win the biker to Christ. It's the salesman who will win the salesman. It's the housewife who will win the housewife. Paul identified with the person or persons he wanted to reach. He would understand the culture, and he'd find common ground so he could build a bridge. This is how we need to approach people. You know, traditionally, the church has taken the, the tactic of how, how to address the culture in two ways. Isolation or imitation. We either separate from the culture or we integrate with the culture. But there's a third option, and it's the proper one. We need to infiltrate the culture. See, Paul became all things to all men so that he could win some. I've heard some Church folks say, I just can't stand your loud rock and roll music. Well, okay, you you can say that, but then don't grumble when young people no longer come to your church. If you want to be inflexible and, and not want to reach the young people, then you'll, you'll, you'll be in a church that will die off one day. I mean, what do you want? A cozy environment for the dignified and the sanctified? 
Or do you want a place where lost people can relate to the gospel? An expert on evangelism, Donald McGravin, once said, the world has more winnable people than ever before, but it's possible to come out of a ripe field empty-handed. And that's what's happening today. The world is hungry for the gospel, but the church doesn't present it in a compelling way, and we're losing other cultures and in, in other generations. When Hudson Taylor landed in mainland China, he struggled in his efforts to spread the gospel until one day the Lord told him to give up his western clothes and his customs and dress like the Chinese. He even cut his hair. This offended his fellow western missionaries, but it built a bridge to the locals that yielded a great spiritual harvest. He didn't go to China to reach missionaries. He went to reach Chinese. The founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, once said, I would stand on my head and play a tambourine with my feet if I thought it would help me win one lost soul to Jesus. And this is how I feel. I'll try anything other than sin if it's going to help me to reach someone or a people group for Jesus. We've got people in our community. I don't understand their culture, but I'm trying And I want to do whatever I can to relate to them, to win them to Christ. I'd even get a tattoo, maybe. (laughs) Chapter 9. Chapter 9 ends with a trip to the stadium. Corinth was the site of the Isthmian Games. At the time, the competition in Corinth eclipsed the Olympics in Athens. The Greek peninsula was a hotbed for athletics, and Paul was a sports buff. You need to know that. He had tickets. He watched games, man. And in verse 24, he compares the Christian life to an athletic contest. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Over 40 years ago, U.S. Olympic coach Brutus Hamilton compiled a list of what he thought would be the ultimate achievements in the sport of track and field. He listed what he thought would be the limits of human endeavor. No one would ever run a 9.2 100-yard dash or a 3-minute 57-second mile or throw a shot put more than 62 feet or high jump more than 7 foot 1 inch, or long jump 27 feet, or pole vault more than 16 feet. Today, every one of those barriers have been shattered. And spiritually speaking, you too can go higher. And you can last longer. And you can become stronger than you thought possible. All that holds you back is a lack of faith. Paul tells the Corinthians to stop toying with their faith. It's time to get serious. If you run in a race, you run all. You put your effort to it. You get determined. You don't give up the first time you get knocked down. You know, this past NFL season, Ezekiel Elliott, a Dallas Cowboy, I hate to say, he rushed for more yards than any other running back, 1,434 yards. But what you don't realize by that number is that he got knocked down every 4.7 yards. And he had to get back up and do it again 304 times. The man's total yardage didn't come easy. 
Nothing of real lasting value in this life comes easy. If you want to rack up some yards for Jesus, if you want to score a few touchdowns for the Lord, your faith needs to toughen up. You need to get determined. He says, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. When an athlete is training for an event, there are foods he won't eat. There are activities in which he won't participate. There's a training regiment that he ascribes to that requires discipline. And the Greek athlete did it for a flimsy reef of all things. Whereas a Christian is after eternal rewards. How much more determined should the believer be? He says, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. This phrase translated discipline my body, it literally means I blacken my eye. Paul uses severe measures in his training. He pushes his body. He does whatever it takes to make his body do what it doesn't want to do. And the Christian needs this kind of mindset. The difference for the Christian is that we have it in our hearts to obey. We discipline our bodies to make them do what we really want to do in our hearts. Jesus transforms our hearts, but we train our bodies and our minds to get in sync and to get in step and to grab that prize. And this stringent effort is required because so much is at stake. Paul worries that he could become disqualified from the ministry. And we've seen it happen to many people, haven't we? He says that after I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He worries about it. He's concerned about it. He doesn't want it to happen to him. Paul imagines a scenario where his soul is saved, but his life is wasted. He doesn't want that where he's rendered unusable. What a tragedy that would be. And we should all fear that outcome. Let's not do anything stupid that would limit our usefulness and cause us to become disqualified.